Well, today we move out of chapter 2 and enter into the third chapter of Peter's first epistle. But the content of this material is actually a continuation of what was begun in chapter 2. There are, as you know, no chapter and verse divisions in the original autographs of Scripture, nor were there any for several centuries, actually. The theme began, really, in verse 11, and Peter teaches believers to live exemplary lives before the world with an evangelistic purpose in view, that as we demonstrate the grace of God in our lives, that God might use that to touch the lives of those who are outside of Christ. And then he gives us some examples of the kinds of good works that he has in view. Number one, Christian citizens are to be submitted to civil government. Verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. Secondly, Christian slaves are to be submitted to their earthly masters. Verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2. And then he goes on to show how that Christ suffered unjustly, and that is an example of how we should patiently endure suffering, even unjust suffering, for Christ's sake, following the example of Christ. And then he closes the chapter by telling us what is the highest purpose of Christ's suffering, namely the salvation of sinners, a far higher purpose even than being an example. But now as we move into chapter 3, he returns to this theme of good works and submission for the purpose of evangelizing others as he takes up the subject of wives, how Christian wives are to be submitted to their husbands. And that's in verses 1 through 6. Of the three categories that Peter deals with in this submission relationship, this third one, the husband-wife relationship, is the only one where he addresses the person who is in authority. And indeed, we'll get to that, not today, but he addresses husbands in verse 7 of chapter 3. He did not address civil authorities in chapter 2, nor masters of slaves in chapter 2. Though elsewhere in Scripture, Paul the Apostle does address Christian masters in this very same relationship. Now, I don't need to tell you that the passage that we are moving into in chapter 3 is a controversial one. It is. And days gone by, the biggest controversy might have surrounded the reference here to gold and adornment of hair and apparel. And that still is an issue with some people in our day. And that needs to be understood because there is a lot of misunderstanding regarding what Peter has to say. But today the biggest controversy is the matter of submission, the the audacity for God to say that wives ought to submit themselves to their husbands. The audacity of the church to repeat what the Bible says about wives being submitted to their husband. What howls of protest are raised throughout the world whenever this area of God's word is approached. Today we're just going to take up the first two verses. The title of my sermon is Submissive Wives and Disobedient Husbands. Submissive Wives and Disobedient Husbands, and we will see the powerful potential of the godly behavior of Christian wives upon their unconverted husbands. The Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle Peter, says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. We see, number one, a command to submit in the first part of verse 1, and then secondly, reasons to submit in the last part of verse 1 and in verse 2. First of all, a very clear and unequivocal command to submit, addressed to wives. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Wives are addressed as a separate category of individuals. Likewise, translates a Greek phrase that could be translated in the same way or in a similar way. Obviously, a reference to the two previous categories in chapter 2. 
in a way similar to citizens being submissive to civil government, in a way similar to slaves being submissive to their masters, likewise wives be submissive to your own husbands. If you are a wife, this is addressed to you. Everyone who fits into the category of a citizen comes under what Peter says in chapter 2 about citizens and civil government. Everybody who happens to be in a slave-master relationship comes under the instructions in chapter 2 about that particular relationship. And now, as he addresses the husband-wife relationship, these first words are addressed to everyone who fits into the category of a wife. If you are a woman and you are married, this is for you. And though uh, those wives who are not Christians may be unconcerned, even unknowledgeable, and may, even if knowledgeable, continue to be rebellious in this area, as they are rebellious in other areas of submission to the Lord, Christian wives need to pay careful attention, and in this area, as in all areas of instruction in God's Word, ask the Lord to help you to understand and obey what the Lord teaches us here. Now, when Peter says likewise, or in a similar way, he's not saying that the submission of wives is identical to that of, say, slaves to their masters. That's pressing that word a little too far. But he is saying that whatever submission is appropriate in the citizen-government relationship, render it. Whatever submission is appropriate in the slave-master relationship, Render that. Whatever submission is appropriate in the husband-wife relationship, Christian wives, you render that. And the similar way would certainly indicate that there is a similar motive involved in all of these. Remember, the motive was to please Christ and to win unsaved people to Christ. Back to chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation, that is, the day when God visits them with the power of the truth of the gospel. And then after having given that general instruction of obedience and that general motive for the purpose of impacting the unsaved people around you, then he begins to give these instructions to specific categories. Therefore, verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For, verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, that testimony aspect. Do this as a testimony, as a witness to the glory and power of God, to to impact the lives of others in the day of their visitation, verse 12, to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, verse 15. For that reason, citizens submit to government. For that reason, slaves submit to their masters. For that reason, wives submit to their husbands. Same motive. And what is the behavior that is required? It is be submissive. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. The same Greek word that is used in verse 13 and verse 18 of chapter 2. The same word that is used of of citizens to government. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, verse 13. The same word that is used of servants or slaves submitting to their masters, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Peter takes up exactly that same word and applies it now to the husband-wife relationship. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. You recall that this is a word that means to rank under, to rank beneath, to submit yourself, to subject yourself. It is a military term. It has the idea of the order and rank in the army, of 
of officers and those who are under their authority, the private who is under the authority of the sergeant and must recognize that authority and rank himself below the authority of the sergeant. That's the idea, rank yourself beneath. It is, to be a little technical here, a present middle tense to the verb, which means that it is reflexive, and that means it is something that the wife is to do, submit yourself. Or, to emphasize the present tense aspect, be continually submitting yourself. The husband is not told to force the submission of his wife, but the Christian wife is told to voluntarily submit yourself and continue doing that. It's a constant battle, isn't it? Just like all areas of Christian obedience are are continual battles. We have to be reminded again. We have to bring ourselves back to the truth again. We have to acknowledge where we have failed and repent and ask God to help us again. We have to continue to do that continually. And likewise, wives must continually be submitting themselves to the authority of their husbands. Something that we know is resented and resisted by fallen human nature. We don't like this. None of us do. Citizens don't just like to submit themselves to the authority of civil government. And some citizens sinfully resist that authority. And slaves, where the slave-master relationship exists, don't just enjoy submitting themselves to the authority of their masters. That's not something that we normally enjoy doing. And wives don't just have a natural, joyful desire to submit themselves to the authority of their husbands. If they did, commands like this wouldn't be required, would they? But this is a reminder that this is what God expects. It's what God requires. No matter how hotly this is rejected by modern society. Can anybody remember a few years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention at their national meeting passed a resolution that said something about that wives ought to be sweetly submitted to their husbands. And, oh, you'd have thought in the, in the, in the national press, you would have thought that they had said wives, uh, husbands are to go home and torture their wives by beating them with boards with nails in it every day. How dare they say such a thing? Simply reminding Christians of what the Bible teaches. That was, after all, a gathering of Christians. The Southern Baptist Convention, surely nobody would object to Christians getting together and reminding themselves of what the Bible teaches, but the world will will not quietly accept such activity on the part of Christians. How dare you say something like this? Now, please understand that to submit yourself to the authority of another, according to the instructions of God's word, does not mean that there's any inferiority of personhood, not any inferiority of worth, not any lesser level of spirituality. In many cases, we know wives have a stronger relationship with the Lord than their husbands, and in some cases are far more knowledgeable regarding God's word than their husbands But that's not the issue. It's a matter of God-assigned roles. There's the role of the husband. There's the role of the wife. It's a matter of God-ordained administration in human society. Government administration, working place, work world administration, home administration. This is God's way of ordering things. It's not a matter of inferiority. When a private is told that he is to submit to the authority of his ranking officer, it doesn't mean that the ranking officer is of intrinsic superior moral worth than the soldier. It just means that he's been given a position of authority. 
The soldier himself may come up through the ranks and have others under him at some point. But at this particular point in time, he has a ranking officer over him, has nothing to do with the value of his personhood, has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority as far as his intrinsic worth and value to, to uh, human society is concerned. But in this relationship, there is a clearly understood rank. Same thing with citizens and government. The fact that citizens are to submit themselves to governing officials doesn't mean that governing officials are of superior worth and citizens are just mere peons who have no value or certainly are not to be valued as much as the governing officials. No, not that at all. The citizen who today renders obedience to government authority may tomorrow himself have a position of government authority. It has nothing to do with intrinsic worth, but it has everything to do with recognizing God's plan for authority in society. Any more than when Jesus, we are told in the scriptures, submitted himself to the authority of his parents, implied that he was of lesser worth than his parents, Of course not. It was an example, a proper submission of a child to his parents. Or when Jesus said to his heavenly Father, Not my will but thine be done, and continually submitted himself to the expressed will of his heavenly Father, does that mean that God the Son is of inferior worth in the Trinity than God the Father? Of course not. If you understand anything about the Godhead and the meaning of the triune Godhead and the different persons of the Trinity, you know that there is absolute equality in the members of the Trinity as far as their worth is concerned, but there is an administrative arrangement. And God the Father is the head of that administrative arrangement within the Trinity. And likewise in the home, God has ordained that the husband will be the head of the administrative relationship in the home. That's simply the way God has ordained it. And so, therefore, to recognize this is to recognize that God has ordained various structures of authority in human society. We believe that that is so. His word reveals that that is so. We acknowledge that. We accept that. And it is to acknowledge more specifically that God has ordained such a relationship in the home with husbands and wives, and wives have been given the role of submission to their husbands. It really goes back all the way to creation. This relationship is seen even before the fall. It's seen in Genesis chapter 2. When we read, for example, in verse 20, So Adam, who was created first, and that's significant, So Adam gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And there in the very beginning, when God first created man and woman, husband and wife, ordained the marriage relationship, God created the man first, God gave the man authority, and then he brought the woman to his side as a helper. And that's from the very beginning, even before the fall. Now, after the fall, this became more resisted and more difficult. And that's why we read in Genesis 3.16, after the fall, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. And your conception, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that's really not a new relationship, that he will rule over you. But now, after the fall, it becomes a more difficult relationship. When there was no sin, it was something that the woman yielded to gladly, and it was something that the man did not misuse. After the fall, there's always this problem. Husbands misusing 
their authority, sinfully abusing the authority given to them by God, wives failing to yield the authority that God has given to their husbands. It's clear, even back in the Genesis account, that wives are to be valued and respected and appreciated and loved. That's what really comes out most strongly in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. But it's also clear that wives are to be submissive to their husbands as their head. And what is revealed to us in the beginning in Genesis is reinforced a number of times in the New Testament scriptures. We read in 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Or Paul, dealing with the marriage relationship in Ephesians 5.22, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And in Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The Apostle Paul said that several times, but he's not the only one. And Peter now says the same thing. The apostles of Jesus Christ are united in all of their teaching. And they're united in this teaching as well. God has ordained in the marriage relationship, in the home, the stipulated leader is the husband and the wife is to be submissive and to follow his leadership. And if you are a Christian wife, you must do so or you are being disobedient to the Lord. The relationship that is involved is the one with your own husband. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. This exclusive relationship, this marriage relationship, this intimate relationship, this loving relationship, this defined relationship and confined relationship and instructions that are confined to that relationship. You are to be submissive to your own husband, not to anybody else's husband. This is not a general command for submission to all men, but it is definitely a command to be submissive to your own husband. Why has God ordained authority in society since we seem to dislike it so much? Why is there divinely ordered submission in a number of relationships throughout society? Well, it's obvious that it's necessary for there to be order in society, order in human relationships, order in the home. It's not clear that there would have been no such submission relationship if there were no sin. In fact, I think the opposite is indicated. But it is clear that because of sin, it becomes all the more important and all the more necessary. Because of man's sinful bent, there would be absolute chaos throughout all of human society if there were not order as ordained by God. And so, undoubtedly, God has arranged for authority to create an orderly society. God has arranged for authority to bring restraint to many sinful human impulses that otherwise would be unrestrained. If you think there's a lot of sin in society now, and there is a lot, just imagine what there would be if there were no government, no police, no sheriff, no no one to enforce order and to enforce the law. Can you imagine what kind of a society we would live in? It would be chaotic and dangerous and wicked beyond all imagination. But another reason why God has ordained authority, I'm, I'm convinced, is to teach us the elements of our fundamental, fundamental relationship with God himself. The fundamental relationship of the creature to the creator is one of submission. And the right relationship that man enters into with his creator is one of submitting to his authority. That's really the essence of it. And so to believe on Christ means to submit to Christ, to recognize his authority and to submit to his authority, to bow the knee. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the right relationship. It's sin that's destroyed that relationship. It is sin that has removed man from under his glad and willing submission to God as his rightful authority. And that's what salvation is doing, is restoring what was lost in Adam's fall and bringing mankind back into submission to his rightful authority. And these human areas of authority in society are to help us understand that we are to be submitted to the authority of God. If you can't submit yourself to human authority, what makes you think you are submitted to divine authority? We talk about surrendering to Christ. That's a good term. Surrender. Stop kicking against his rightful authority. Lay down your arms of resistance. Surrender. Surrender. And if you surrender to his authority, then, of course, you'll surrender to his authority as he instructs you as to his will in different areas of human authority. That's all an extension of surrendering to his authority. You can't say, I surrender to your authority, O Lord, but I won't surrender to this human authority. If God has ordained that human authority, that is nonsense. That's the same as calling Jesus Lord and doing not the things that I say unto you. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say unto you? Don't you see the utter preposterousness of that? You're saying it with your lips. You're doing nothing in your heart and in your actions. If you call me Lord, then demonstrate that I am Lord. Obey me. And my instructions are not a buffet for you to go along and pick out the ones you like and leave the ones you don't like. My instructions are all to be obeyed, every one of them. So submission to human authority in many ways becomes a test of our relationship with God Almighty. It becomes a manifestation of our relationship with God Almighty. It reveals the true condition of our heart. We're very good many times at deceiving ourselves about the condition of our heart. And we think that we are in a right relationship with God, but we seem to be in a wrong relationship with so many of the institutions and authorities around us, it's time for a checkup. Wake up. The command to submit. But secondly, reasons to submit. And the verse goes on. It says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word... They may, without a word, be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. God gives reasons to the wife to encourage her to do what is going to be difficult at times. No reasons are required. All God would have to do is say, Thou shalt, thou shalt not, end of subject. That's all he would have to do. That's perfectly Acceptable. God is God. But oftentimes, God does give us reasons to help us to understand why he does what he does. And so he does that here. And in this section, the two primary reasons to submit, besides the obvious unstated one, which is because God says it, but the two primary obvious reasons to submit are, number one, to overcome an unequal yoke, and number two, to authenticate a Christian profession. And the first one is to overcome an unequal yoke. Be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. There it is again. That permeates this whole section. This is the reason for all of these commands going back to chapter 2. This is why we are to live godly lives before the world so that we can glorify God and, and impact people in the day of their visitation when God, God reveals himself to them, that we've had a part in that by the kind of life we've lived before them. 
And now it comes to a very personal level in the husband-wife relationship, in those cases where there's a Christian wife and an unsaved husband. Your behavior, your obedience in this very area can be the thing that brings your unconverted husband to Christ. Now, the same instructions apply in equal yoke marriages as in unequal yoke marriages. In other words, Peter is not saying if, you're, if you have a Christian husband, these instructions don't apply to you. That's not what he's saying. He says that even if some do not obey the word. This is sort of an exception, but it's a notable one and a significant one. The implication seems to be that probably most of the wives that Peter is talking to do have Christian husbands, but... Even if you don't, it's kind of like back to the slave-master relationship in chapter 2. He said, be obedient, slaves, be obedient to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the crooked and evil ones. Even if your master is harsh, even if your master's unkind, even if your master's dishonest, you still give him the submission that that relationship requires. And it's a similar thing here. Peter is saying, even if your husband's not a Christian, his status as an unbeliever does not cancel these instructions. That's what he's saying. And so even if your husbands do not obey the word... I would take it that in most of these situations, the marriage came first and then the wife became a Christian and created the unequal yoke after the marriage. Christians are not to enter into unequal yokes. Christian wives are not to marry unconverted men and Christian men are not to marry unconverted wives. The Bible is clear about that. But in many cases, those who are unsaved will come to Christ after they are married. And when that happens, it's pretty rare that both husband and wife come to the Lord on the same day. So wherever, after marriage, somebody becomes a Christian, you're almost always going to have an unequal yoke for some period of time. And where Christian wives have unconverted husbands, these instructions still apply to them. In fact, there now becomes an additional motive. Where you have a Christian husband, the motive is to obey the Lord, to please Him, to to honor His Word, to obey His instructions for the husband-wife relationship. But where you have an unconverted husband, now there is an additional motive, there is an evangelistic motive on top of that that doesn't apply in the equal yoke marriage. In the first century world, a woman who became a Christian after marriage would be in a very difficult situation. If you think, if you think, um, Christian instructions for wives in regard to submission to their husbands is difficult in our day, and it really should not be thought that way at all, but if you think that's difficult, you should familiarize yourself with the Customs and culture of the first century and how wives were regarded and how much liberty they were given and how much, how much authority they had. They virtually had none. In, in that first century Roman world, a husband virtually owned his wife in the same way that he might own a slave. That was difficult. If in that situation a wife becomes a Christian, she's in for a lot of difficulty. And so in that situation, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, some do not obey the word, that could simply mean that they are unbelievers. Sometimes that's the language that is used. We read, for example, in Acts 6-7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. A great many priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, they believed. They became believers in Jesus Christ, described here as obedient to the faith. So that may be what 
Peter is saying here, that if your husbands do not obey the word, that is, if your husbands have not trusted Jesus Christ, if they have not believed in Jesus Christ. But all the indications are that there's probably even more than that involved here. Certainly that, but more. It's a present tense verb, and therefore would indicate pattern of life, that if your husbands are not continually obeying the word, the issue is not so much whether they have or have not believed at any time in the past. The issue is what is manifested in their pattern of life in an ongoing way, day by day. Are they obedient to the word? Are they submitted to Christ and to his word? Are they followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are their lives in submission to the requirements of the word of God? And if not, then don't despair because God has placed in your hands, wife, a very powerful tool of evangelism for such a husband. Now, this helps us to understand how we are to identify a Christian. We don't identify Christians merely by their profession of faith, not if we're wise. We identify our Christians by whether a Christian, whether or not there's a life of obedience. When it comes to this question of the unequal yoke, a Christian girl is considering marrying a young man who doesn't give a lot of evidence of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he professes to be a Christian. He's a Christian. He says he is. He professes to be. It's not an unequal yoke. It probably is. Because how he lives is much more revealing of his true identity than what he professes to be. Does he obey the word? Is he obeying the word? Is he living a life of basic general obedience to the word of God? Of course not sinless perfection. But is his life one that follows a pattern of obedience to the word of God? Then he's a Christian. That's an equal yoke. If he is not obeying the word, then you are not to regard him as a Christian no matter what he says. And furthermore, this is a strong reminder that our obedience to Christ is not contingent upon another person's obedience. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands that even if any obey not the word, you still submit. It's not, I'll be a submissive wife if he'll be a good Christian loving husband. He ought to be. But even if he's not. I'll do it if he does it. I'll do it if she does it. I'll obey if they obey. Like a bunch of children playing in the sandbox. He hit me back first. We obey as unto the Lord, regardless. We'll answer to the Lord for our obedience or disobedience, and they'll answer to the Lord for theirs. And so we are reminded that wives should submit in order to overcome an unequal yoke. And wives should submit in order to authenticate a Christian profession. That even if some do not obey the word, they may without a word be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear without a word, may be won by the conduct of the wives. Isn't that remarkable? May be won without the wife speaking a word. You say, wait a minute, surely that's not what it means? Yes, that's what it means. Won by your conduct, not by your words. In fact, your words become an obstacle. In this particular situation, your conduct, your quiet, silent testimony, the conduct of your life becomes the powerful testimony, not your words, not your words. You're going to win your husband through the eye, not through the ear. 
No verbal witness from the wife, but rather a quiet, consistent, Christian lifestyle. You say, surely not. That's what it says. Are you going to obey it? Are you going to believe it? But, 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 no buts. Your job is to provide a silent demonstration of God's transforming grace. And trust God to bring your husband under the sound of the word. After all, this is God's plan, God's instruction. He knows how to do it. How audacious to say, well, I'm going to win my husband to Christ my way. I'm going to preach him into it. No, you won't. You'll preach him away from it without a word. What you think is appropriate preaching sounds to him like inappropriate nagging without a word. Button your lip and redouble the efforts of your life. Your conduct should be observable and exemplary and God-centered. Your conduct that will win him is observable. When they observe... When they see your chaste conduct, your conduct must be exemplary. Your chaste conduct, that's a word that means pure, free from sin. Not simply in the sexual arena, that goes without saying, but it's bigger than that, broader than that. The way you live, without deceit, you don't tell your husband lies, you don't deceive him. The way you you respect him, you don't disrespect him, you don't slander him, you don't run him down to others. The way that you don't overspend your money and ruin the budget. The way you conduct your life in a godly, consistent, Christian way. That's going to be used as a powerful testimony to bring him to Christ. That obviously means that your submission to your husband does not include obeying him if he tells you to sin. You can't sin and demonstrate a chaste, pure life before him. So there are limits to your submission. You cannot sin. You must not sin. But even when you refuse, when there are areas where you must refuse what he says, which may very well happen when you have a disobedient husband, you are going to do so in a quiet, loving, gracious, godly way. And your conduct must be God-centered, accompanied by fear. That means fear of God. In other words, you do all of this for the right reasons, with the right motives. There's no value in self-righteous Pharisaism. We've all known wives like that. Oh, yeah, they do everything just right. Goody, goody, look at me, how righteous I am. If you do it that way, you will, you will make things worse. It's got to be humble, godly, conduct, quiet, God-centered, powerful. God will use that powerfully. A gracious, submissive, godly attitude is the most effective tool of evangelism that God has placed in your hands in regard to your husband. Now let's look at a few lessons and applications before we... Bring all of this to a close. Number one, and I've already mentioned this, the wife's submission is voluntary as unto the Lord. There's no indication anywhere that the husband is to force submission upon his wife. God does indicate, for example, that civil authority has been given power by God to enforce the law. Paul says of the civil official, he beareth not the sword in vain. God never says of the husband, he beareth not the club or the whip in vain. Nothing like that. Anywhere in all the word of God. Christian wives are instructed to be submissive. Where they are not, they are disobedient. The the Christian husband must commit that to the Lord. He is not given permission nor instructions to force that kind of submission upon his wife. His wife is not a slave. 
His wife is not a child. In the child-parent relationship, there are some enforcing techniques that are indicated in Scripture. Spanking children is perfectly appropriate. Other ways of punishing them and enforcing obedience is required by parents in their parental role. Nothing like that is ever hinted at in regard to the husband-wife relationship. The husband has no permission to do that with his wife. If he does that, he's entirely out of line. The wife's submission is voluntary. She must do it voluntarily as unto the Lord. I'm convinced that in a good, solid, godly marriage that submission is not going to be a constant issue. The wife is going to be endeavoring to submit. The husband is going to be working on being a loving husband. Why is it that that sometimes we get it all backwards and we think that our responsibility is make the other person do their responsibility? So the wife is convinced that her role in life is to make her husband be a godly, loving leader. And she's going to nag him into it. Oh, no, you're not. And the husband thinks it's his role in life to make his wife a submissive wife. And he's going to force her into it with every way he knows how. Oh, no, you're not. That won't work. Voluntary. Another lesson I see is that there are limits to God-honoring submission. The obvious limits we've talked about, no command to sin. In fact, the command is never to sin, even if your husband commands you to sin. But there are the not-so-obvious ones that have more to do with positive Christian commitments rather than the negative ones. As I've already said, a, a wife coming to Christ in this first century would have been a very difficult matter. That would have been viewed as forsaking the family gods. That would probably have been viewed as jeopardizing family prosperity because the whole family wasn't worshiping the family gods that were thought to bring prosperity. That would be viewed by society as being unpatriotic because she's no longer worshiping the national gods. That would be seen, no doubt, as rebellious because she's forsaken her husband's gods and in that way has defied his authority. Her activity might even be viewed as flirtatious because she has now taken up a new circle of friends, namely the church, that is not shared by the husband. And do you know what? Peter supports her in all those things. That has to do with your Christian commitment. You can't worship Christ and continue to worship the shelf gods at home. You can't worship Christ and fail to assemble yourselves with believers to be part of the local church. Well, what if my husband doesn't want me to go to church? Well, you may have to work out the issues of how often. You may not be able to go as often as you would like, but you can't refuse to go. That's part of your Christian commitment. You're going to have to put that positive Christian commitment above your submission to your husband. There are going to be plenty of areas where what you do is going to be viewed as rebellion, lack of submission to an unconverted husband. And you're going to have to deal with those quietly and just overcome that with with an extra measure of sweet submission in every other area of life. A third lesson that we should mention, though it's not in our text, is just a reminder that in this relationship, husband-wife, the more difficult responsibility really falls to the husband. It's only superficial ignorance that thinks that being the authority is actually the easiest role. That's the hardest role, to be the right kind of authority, to be a godly authority, to be a loving authority. You say, Pastor Barkman, you've been married 38 years. Has Marty ever been unsubmissive to you in those 38 years of marriage? I think probably so, a time or two along the way. 
You say, well, tell me about it. I don't remember. I don't remember the instances. We don't mark faults, do we? And one reason I don't remember is because the occasions when she was unsubmissive were so few compared to the many occasions where I failed to love her with a Christ-like love. I'm too busy working on my part to be concerned about her failure. I've got the biggest failure. I've got the biggest job. I've got the hardest role. And the fourth application is to just say that this points the way, I think, to the power of a quiet testimony in other relationships besides the marriage one. Sometimes the hardest people to win to Christ are those that we are closest to, not only our husband and wife, but extended family, people we work with every day. And sometimes we think the way to win them is just to barrage them with a witness every day, a verbal witness every day, just shower them with tracts, just flood them with all of these things. That's the way we're going to win them. And this shows us that sometimes that's counterproductive. Certainly some witness will have to be spoken, will have to be extended. You can't, nobody can be saved without hearing the word. We know that. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But we need to realize that, that when a verbal witness has been given, and particularly when there's no interest in it, perhaps the best technique, the best strategy at that point is to just hunker down and so demonstrate Christ in your life every day that they are forced to admit that there's something real that they don't know anything about. God can use that in a powerful way. Shall we pray? Well, Father, we have much to work on, all of us, husbands as well as wives, unmarried as well as married. Your ways are so far above our ways. But, Lord, you reveal your ways to us. Please teach us your ways and show us your paths. And keep reminding us when we stray. And give us the help and grace to do what your word commands us to do. And we know you shall, as we look to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.